Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today is Black Friday, though I'm not sure what that actually means in 2020. I think I'm going to celebrate today by not going anywhere, just like most days lately. But yesterday was Thanksgiving, and I hope everybody had a good day and gave thanks for the things and the family and the friends that we still have. One of the people that I'm thankful for is Guy Ruoff, an instructor at SNHU and town supervisor for Scott, New York, who agreed to talk to me about his academic background and the importance of historical knowledge in his political career. So what is your name and what do you do? My name is Dr. Guy Ruoff, and I am a history instructor for Southern New Hampshire University currently, and I'm also a duly elected town supervisor as of the last election for the town of Scott, and uh, located in central New York, 13077. And it's named after General Winfield Scott. The uh, general came up with the winning, the Anaconda plan that ended up being the win winning tactical battle plan for the American Civil War. And uh, the town of Scott lies within the village of Homer. Come on, how classy is that? <laughs> We're talking history, right? Wow, that's a, that's I <laughs> that's that's cool. I, well, okay, great. I'm looking forward to talking to some more about that. We've um, I've had a couple of uh, uh, local uh, political types um, in various episodes before, so I look forward to hearing what you have to say about that. So great, we'll come back to that. So before we go any further, though, can you uh, tell us a little bit about your academic and professional background? Sure, definitely. I've always valued education. So right out of high school, uh, I went for an associate's degree at, a, at a, the State University of New York at Farmingdale. And it was a two-year degree. I had my first degree by the time I was 19. And uh, it was a, an associate's in applied science and electrical engineering technology. And, uh, you know, that was before the internet. You know, I graduated in 1984. You know, how, uh, how Orwellian of me, right? Uh, <laughs> and then you know, I decided, well, what I really loved, I took a history class while I was there to get my uh, science degree in science, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. My history uh, professor, I, I wish I could remember his name. That was like 30, you know, 40 years ago. But uh, wow, it was great. And, and, and then I took an art history class, and I realized, well, this is really where I need to be. So then I switched over. I transferred to the State University of New York at Cortland and received my bachelor's degree in uh, history. And I minored in Spanish. I actually, you know, always loved the Spanish language growing up in the city of New York. And I learned it in high school, all grades pretty much three through 12. And then I ended up studying at the University of Salamanca. And ahora puedo entender todo la lengua de los españoles porque yo atendí la Universidad de Salamanca en 1987. Si yo atendí la universidad, yo... Uh, which aprendí uh, las novelas de Cervantes, las poemas de Miguel de Unamuno, y las vidas de los españoles. Qué tiempo. So I'm able to read, speak, and write Spanish fluently, and I, and I also, you know, translated when I was in the Marine Corps, and I did a few other things. You'll have to excuse me for those phone calls. I, I just, oh, no problem. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you only Friday afternoon, that's when they're going to call. You know. Right. <laughs> 
Well, I was at my uh, my my high school Spanish. I was able to keep up with about half of the stuff you were saying there. So I I, I got the the general gist that that you went to school and did stuff. <laughs> well, well, that's great. So, what were your uh, research interests in uh, uh, once you got into the grad or history programs? Well, um, American history. I've always been fascinated. I always growing up, I loved American Revolution and, and a lot of the stories involved. Like, uh, you know, I can mention names like who's Johnny Tremaine? You know, nobody today has any idea who he is. But, you know, it's a fictional character. But the idea is, you know, this implanted in me my pride in being American. You know what I'm saying? There was There was a lot of knowledge there when I was growing up. Of, of how to be proud to be American. And, that, and and I loved American history for that. And I had excellent teachers that always spoke about American history, uh, you know, not in the kindest of lights, but in the truest of light so that you could actually feel pride in your own culture and who you are. But the idea, you know, uh, I, I always loved various history. So I have a degree in science at this point. I have a degree in history at this point. And I'm learning, you know, foreign languages. I lived in Spain. I was able to have tremendous respect for another culture, a different people, learning things from a different perspective. You know what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and the way that Europeans look upon the West, you know, we are still considered the West to, to the Europeans. We're cowboys. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's how they refer to us. They all think we're, you know, uh, America to uh, when I lived in Spain to uh, to the Spaniards, America it was two things. It was Hollywood and Disney World. Yeah. You know, and that that's that's what we were. And uh, I, I believe that image has changed, <laughs> you know, but that, that's who we were. then, and, and it was just such a different world to, to live in. And I absolutely loved it. I highly suggest it for anyone, uh, you know, looking to, you know, broaden their horizons. Uh, to, to live within another culture and to learn their their language. When I was in the Marine Corps, when I was in boot camp, I was I was so stressed out. I was laying there in the middle of the night, and I started speaking Spanish in my sleep, and I started freaking everybody out because <laughs> <laughs> you know I don't look like I have the ability to do that. So you know that was one of those weird things. You know, boot camp can really bring out the best in you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, when you so you said that your interest was in uh, revolutionary America and various other aspects of American history. Um, when you was that what you did your dissertation on? Was it on revolutionary America, or did you go in a different different direction? Well, for my uh, for my doctoral degree, for for my thesis, uh, I did uh, actually Benedict Arnold and the American Revolution, and mm. uh, and one of the reasons why I chose him, I chose him is because. He was a lot like Daniel Shays. You know, these were men who invested their not only their, their dedication and their time, but their money, all of their money into the revolution. And then when the, you know, the, but then when you know, the, when it came time to pay taxes, they were like, okay, now you have to pay taxes. And they were like, well, I can't pay taxes because I, I donated all my money to you know, Benedict Arnold bought uniforms for his man and everything else. So you know, they were like, I, and they were like, you know, he was just so upset by the fact that you can't understand that I invested my money and my time and my dedication in the revolution. And all you want back from me is money and you can't offer me any, any kind of, you know, consideration. <laughs> so Daniel Shays ended up leading a revolt and, and Benedict Arnold ended up being a, you know, a, a, a traitor, you know, tried to sell out the plans to West Point, but George Washington got wind of that. And that was to put the kibosh on that. But 
Benedict Arnold's is very misunderstood. And he actually went on to fight for the British and he won a few battles for the British in Connecticut. And two of his sons actually served proudly in the British Army and British Navy, uh, Benedict Arnold. So he was, he was quite, quite the interesting character to understand. And if you go back in history and you look at like ancient Greek history, you'll find characters like Alcibiades, you know, and, and a few others that have had the ability to switch sides and, and you know, personally profit from it. You know, uh, Benedict Arnold was never forgiven, but Daniel Shays was. He was actually him and his revolutionaries were brought back and, you know, they were actually forgiven. And he was actually in the end, Daniel Shays was given a pension, even though him and a bunch of Western Massachusetts farmers rose up against the, you know, the newly formed uh, American government. And once again, the, you know, the, the question of taxation, even today is, is, you know, enough to drive people over the edge. You know, mm-hmm. we, we see today with the taxation situations, and if you're going to tax me, I want a voice. You know, it's called taxation with representation. Now that I'm at the supervisor level here in the town, you know, I'm big on that. You know, we, you know, I, I'm going through it's budget time. I'm going through, and I'm realizing a, a, a lot of people are underrepresented and overtaxed. So, you know, as a result of that, we, we have a boat launch here. It launches on this Lake Skinny Atlas, and they were always charging residents. Uh, of the town 50 bucks a year to utilize the boat launch. Well, we currently are introducing legislation to make it free for town residents because Mm -hmm. that is part of their, you know, we heard from them. We actually, you know, I did something called crowdsourcing. I run the local website. (laughs) I created Mm -hmm. the local website, townofscott.org, you know, nothing like WordPress. And, you know, I reached out at crowdsourcing and many of them felt they weren't, you know, getting their money's worth when it came to taxation. Well, this is exactly what what everyone needed. They needed a little morale, a little boost, a little something back. And, you know, we went through the motions, you know, initiatives, referendums, and now we have, and now we're open hearings. (laughs) I'm learning the entire process. And now adopting the legislation, creating the legislation, adopting the legislation, we're going to make it happen. So, you know, we are going to give the people what they want. Imagine that. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'm in. Uh, I'm based in Columbus, Ohio, and there's the Columbus Zoo, which is one of the, you know, it's a well-known zoo, and the count every all the residents of the county pay taxes that go towards the zoo, but then of course they also have to pay admission. So there's been kind of a big push lately for the fairness of that. That if we're already paying taxes on it, we shouldn't have to pay for admission also, and. It hasn't, as far as I know, it hasn't gone anywhere near as far as your efforts uh, with the boat launch, but uh, it is, it, it, it's an issue. It's an issue in a lot of places, whenever there's some sort of public subsidy for what is essentially a private organization, uh, and then they charge admission fees and all that on top of that, then yeah, that, that, that can be a little bit tricky. Well, I agree completely. That's why I learned a phrase in politics, you can think globally, but act locally. That's right. And you can, that's where the difference is made. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your, uh, your, your venture into politics here. So, um, so it sounds like you're relatively new to the supervisor position, but what prompted you to enter politics? What, what, what made you decide to pursue this? Well, thank you for that question. That's very insightful. I, uh, I've have been going to the meetings. I have not, I never owned my own home. And I finally moved out into like rural suburbia here uh, in Scott, New York. 
And I decided, once again, think globally, act locally. So I, I decided to go to the town board meetings and I realized that, you know, that this is only a town of a thousand. There's no commercial district. We're very small, you know, a uh, very simple, humble town. But there were certain things the town needed. And I was noticing the last supervisor who was here for 10 years just constantly kept ignoring issues, you know, kicking things down, kicking the can down the road. Uh, you know, every year when the town board was up for a raise, he denied them. You know, so you know, I only make four thousand one hundred dollars a year as the town supervisor, yet I'm expected to, you know, run a website, run meetings. You know, I do the Zoom meetings now because of the pandemic, and I do a whole, you know, all kinds of administrative paperwork and meeting with people and hiring people and everything else. So there's a there's a lot to do, and and I realized that you know he wasn't doing it right. He, and then I found out a few other things. And I just want to thank uh, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the great United States of America, for informing me about politics before uh, I, I truly, you know, entered the arena. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said, as soon as a man, you know, and back then it was men, right? Men and, and now it means men and women. As soon as we'll change that to person, as soon as, I, you know, we'll update it. <laughs> as, yeah. soon as, as soon as a person decides to get involved with politics, a certain darkness enters their soul. <laughs> and, yeah. and I thought about that. I, and I was a Marine Corps officer. I'm big on I'm big on integrity. I won't even take a free cup of coffee just to make sure that I don't owe anybody anything and I can act appropriately because of that. But this last supervisor was on the take all over the place. And, and it was amazing. So uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson was absolutely right with that statement. I, I just want to say that. And now I find myself with a two-year term and I'm doing a lot of, uh, I'm putting out fires, I'm cleaning up messes and, you know, the ship is back, uh, you know, clean, you know, uh, fixing the holes in the ship and we're back underway. You know what I'm saying? We're up and running, we're back underway. And, uh, and the town, I'm, I'm telling you, the people are very appreciative, very appreciative when their government starts to go in the right direction. You know, uh, you could hear it and people, more people are showing up to the meetings. I know there's Zoom meetings now and more people are getting involved because now they know they have a voice. They actually mm -hmm. have the ability to get something done. And now we're even changing the code book to meet the needs of the people. That's something the ancient Romans always did. You know, you ever hear about the Roman Revolution? <laughs> <laughs> no, because they never had one. They constantly amended their rules. Let me get an example. They had a rule called the Canulian Law because you know, only rich people could marry rich people and poor people, you know, could only marry poor people. Well, you know, that keeps rich, rich and poor, poor. So they had to change that and a few other things. So they, you know, come up with the Hortensian Law, which is our uh, equivalent of our 14th Amendment. You know, let's make everyone equal. And that really suppressed a lot of the, the tension within their society. They constantly amended the rules. They always legislated for the good of all, and they always taxed for the good of all. And if you take that approach towards government, you know, with uh, you can really, really meet the needs of the people and find yourself in a position where, you know, you can't, like Solon said, the great ancient Greek uh, lawgiver, you can't, you know, in trying to make all the people happy all the time, I make no one happy. You know what I'm saying? If you try to make everyone happy, you wind up making nobody happy. But if you take this approach, you will have a such a general approach that it will be appreciated by all. Democracy is about, you know, making sacrifices. 
nobody gets everything they want in a democracy. You know, at least they shouldn't. But, uh, you know, sacrifices have to be made. And that's that's a good governmental approach. And it truly is appreciated by the people. Yeah, I I'm drawing a blank on who it was that said it, but and but and I'm, well, I don't even know the exact wording of the quote anyway. But it was something along the lines of you know at the end of the day in a in in a democracy like ours, uh, compromise requires that everybody n- nobody's going to get exactly what they want, but hopefully at the end of the day everyone is happy enough that it will succeed, <laughs> and that's kind of all you can really go for. Exactly. That's that's you know that's a rational, reasonable approach. And so since, you know, since we're historians, um, beyond the, you know, the, the knowledge of the historical trivia about Scott and Homer and all of that, how do you see your historical skills as contributing to, you know, your work as a supervisor? What, what, what role does your, does your background play, do you think? Well, uh, one thing I can, I can, you know, the knowledge, uh, just I worked at the local community college. I, and I and I uh, educated students in political science, and in you know at the history 100, 200 levels, and especially in Western civilization. And you're able to introduce to these people, you know, why are our lords, you know, why are we a Greco-Roman culture with Judeo-Christian values and Germanic customs? You know, why why you know, how did we get to that? That's complicated. <laughs> you know, it's complicated, but how do we get to be that? And then you introduce, and it's their own society starts to make sense to themselves. You know, we lost civics. Civics, I just saw an interview uh, a while ago with Richard Dreyfuss. Remember him, the famous actor uh, in Jaws? He was in Jaws Mm -hmm. and other movies. And he said, one of the true things missing in our society is civics. We no longer teach civics, at least not in New York State. They've removed civics from the, you know, K through 12. You know, people leave high school uh, not knowing how to be good citizens. And that is the number one reason why you educate people is so they can enter society and not only be a good citizen, but be able to make good decisions based upon knowledge of their own culture. And mm-hmm. we seem to be losing a lot of that. We seem to be losing a lot of that. Uh, I, let me give you an example. I, at a meeting, I had a, uh, a meeting the other night. I had someone start telling me about, you know, I didn't know what I was doing and this and that. And, I, it was a fellow board member, and I, I asked him three quick questions about government, and he couldn't answer any one of them. The you know, number one question is, who holds the highest rank in our society? And he told me it was the president. And I had to remind him, it, it's the citizens. But citizens right. is, is the highest rank. Uh, and he just sat there, you know, befuddled. And then I said, where does government get its, its power from? And he said, Congress. No, I said, yeah, government gets its power from the consent of the people. Right. And then, you know, he just I was clueless. And then I said, the third and final question, uh, yeah. what type of government do we have? And he just looked at me and goes, a democracy. And I said, no, it's based upon the principles of democracy. We have a constitutional republic. Mm-hmm. So I just stared at this, the, the same individual who was just chewing me up and down like I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about politics or government. And then I asked him the final question, why do we call it politics? And he just stared at me again. I said, well, the ancient Greeks had something called a polis, uh, which was a city, you know, a little countryside, but it had an urban center with countryside around it. Much like many of the cities in upstate New York. And I said, if you're in the polis and you're talking about the polis, the people in the polis, the events in the polis, guess what you're talking? 
And he stared at me. I said, you're talking politics. And that's where it comes from. And, you know, I'm finding more and more there are some people, not only in local government, but I, they think they know what they're talking about. And they're putting on a good act. But, you know, they're actually, it's the art of bloviation. Uh, um, Warren G. Harding was really good at this. Uh, he was the great bloviator. You know, these people can talk for 20 minutes and say nothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, and when they're pressed for real information and real knowledge, and what and, they tr and you try to establish your own credibility. See, that's what it's about. You have to be credible. You know, as an educator, that's everything to me. I have to remain credible. But if you look at a lot of things, like journey, remember when journalists took that same approach? You know, mm -hmm. imagine, imagine, you know, like an Edward R. Murrow or a Walter Cronkite or maybe an Ed Bradley, you know, my credibility is everything. I, I will not sell out my soul. My credibility is my soul. I will not sell it. But apparently, you know, people are making deals left and right for their credibility these days. And, uh, I, you know, I established my credibility on that night, and I can't say the same for the other gentlemen. <laughs> education is everything. And then when I, you know, like I have the Audible now and I listen to the Federalist Papers. I, I really enjoy Mr. Leighton Pugh. He's quite the narrator. And, and, I, and I listen to Common Sense by Thomas Paine and others on the Audible late at night. And it's fantastic because within there is not only tremendous common sense, of course, but insightful thoughts. Like an essay concerning human understanding, I was listening to John Locke, you know, who loves the word innate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, he, he loves that word. But the idea is there are things within us we naturally feel we should have. And our government really should do its best to provide that, like natural rights, the right, right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which John Locke uh, considered property, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... These are the things we would like to see with our, in our society. And it all starts, I believe, with education. You know, we want people sitting on our town boards who know what kind of government we, we have. <laughs> we want people <laughs> on our town boards who realize citizen is the highest rank. You know, and, and, and that would change their approach towards the legislation they create. You know, that citizen holds the highest rank. And maybe, you know, if they're planning on doing things, they could, should derive the consent of the people. And we seem to be lacking that these days. You know, we have, we vote for representatives who, you know, have forgotten about us along the way. And they forget that they, they actually they serve the people. And you have to remind them. You have to remind them. I remember on TV once, I saw once Cheryl Crow. The, the, I love Cheryl Crow, her music listening. On. She got in a conversation with Dick Cheney. <laughs> and she reminded Dick Cheney that you work for me. And Dick Cheney turned around and said, turned around and said right there, I don't work for you. I, I work for the people. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, I always thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess that kind of explains the, the disconnect there. Because if you're thinking that I serve the people, but that doesn't mean a specific individual person, then you can pretty much envision the people as whatever you want them to be. And that can be a justification for anything. So that doesn't sound like a good way to go. Uh, I believe Mao Zedong had that same mentality. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I imagine it's it's kind of the common concept. I mean, I, I imagine all authoritarians have that same perspective is that, well, I am work. I'm doing this for the people. You know that. <laughs> I know that. Of course, it's obvious that I'm doing it for the people. 
Although you would, but when you look at the individual person, well, no, not that person. <laughs> I'm doing it for the people. <laughs> so are you going to stick with politics, do you think? Are you going to uh, serve out your term and be done? Are you going to keep going? Are you going to move on to somewhere else? What do you think? Well, I'm, I'm getting a positive response from the people because we've already done more in one year than the last administration did in 10. And that goes as far as, you know, uh, you know, uh, creating infrastructure improvement, uh, uh, legislative improvement, uh, as well as the others. So I've already had a few people approach me and ask me, you know, if I'd be interested in being the county legislator, you know, move up to from the town board to the, you know, be on a town board to the county legislator. And mm -hmm. I told them I, I'm interested that, you know, that won't take place for another three years because they just had an election and the county board members that county legislators are there for four years. Uh, so I might serve this two year term. I might serve another two year term and then move on to the county legislator uh, position if uh, if that's possible. We'll see uh, how it goes. I really enjoy working for SNHU and I'm getting more and more involved. And the more and more I get involved with SNHU, I'm realizing, you know, I might not have as much time for the political arena. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, right now it's, it's working. It's, it's a nice mix, a nice balance. But it's nice to know that that offer is there. I mean, only, you know, we'll see yeah. what they say next year at this time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we all know how politics goes, you know. But, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, like Frank Sinatra said, I, I'm riding high in April, shot down in May, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and with, with our current political chaos, this probably is the best time to not be trying to run for an office right now. <laughs> you might want to wait until the things settle down a little bit. Well, we all know the economics uh, really dictate, you know, uh, how how you're going to do in office and, and as well as the political climate. And we see, you know, uh, uh, presidents like Jimmy Carter. I, I really like Jimmy Carter. You know, I was born in 64, so I wasn't old enough to vote for him. But, you know, I was in school and everything. But, you know, you remember the gas crisis and everything else mm -hmm. that, that really sunk his chance to get try and get a second term. And Ronald Reagan really picked up on that and ran with it. Uh, economics can really, really sink your ship uh, as a president. So you yeah. want to make sure, you know, uh, and it's also nice to, to run for president when there's only one political party like James Monroe did. You know, yeah. Then we could usher in the era of good, free, you know, the era of good feelings. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We, we could use another era of good feelings, I think. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess it depends on which 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 party dissolves. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, well, I don't think that's going to happen for a while. I think things are too uh, polarized right now for that to happen, but we shall see. Um, let's see. Okay, so we've covered your um, your current career a bit. Uh, did you want to talk a little bit about what you did before you became a supervisor? Or um... well, you know, one of the things I want to say is. It, I went through several aspects of society. I served in the military. You know, I worked for the city of New York. Uh, I've been in school my entire life, in and out, in and out, in and out. And I graduated mm -hmm. at the age of 50 uh, with my doctoral degree in education from Capella University. And I graduated with distinction. That, uh, that means I graduated with a perfect 4.0. You know, I stick with education. My first degree, I think I got a 2.2. <laughs> my second degree, I think I got a 2.78. My third degree, I, I think I got a 3.0009 because you needed a 3.0 to graduate. That's how I know that. Mm -hmm. and, 
And then finally, you know, it just all clicked. And when I took educational leadership and management classes and, and studied education, I, I, it just all clicked. It all made tremendous sense to me. And I was just so happy at the age of 50 to graduate, you know, with a perfect 4.0 and uh, just be, you know, just be an example. When I was in the Marine Corps, they always said, you know, leadership by example is the best type of leadership, you know, so to, uh, you know, be, be an educator with a, with a, a doctoral degree with a perfect 4.0, that, that's, you know, that's leadership by example, I believe. And that's, that's something you can put on the wall and point to and say, I can, I can take you there. I've been there. I, that's the top of the mountain. Follow me. You know, I'm your guide. I can take you there. I've been there before. Mm-hmm. So, that's great. Yes. You know, imagine, uh, imagine me walking with a lantern in, in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> leading right. the way, leading the way. <laughs> Do you have anything to recommend to us today? Um, yes, never, never quit, never stop. That, that's the story. Uh, I've been a lifetime learner and I learned in the Marine Corps, you know, and in a few other things, you know, playing football, you know, maintain <laughs> and a few other things, never give up. You know, I, I, I grew up on the water a place called Breezy Point, New York. It's, it's on Long Island. Long Island looks like a, a giant whale if you look at the uh, geography of it. So I grew up on the lower lip. <laughs> mm. uh, and we're, we're a very, you know, seafaring community, you know, very nautical community. And there's a saying, we never give up the ship. Uh, you know, if you remember John Paul Jones, I've only yet begun to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, never give up the ship. You know, stand tall. And if possible, and if, if you have to, sometimes you have to go down with the ship. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't even begin to tell you how everyone will respect you for that. That's right. I'm going to recommend something a, a, a bit more. What's um, uh, more of a thing. <laughs> so I'm going to recommend a podcast series actually called the memory palace. This is one that I used to, live to listen to a long time ago. And then I just happened to kind of stumble back on it a couple of days ago and I've been re-listening to it. And it's, it's, it's great. It's uh it's a history podcast, but the the guy that does it, his name is Nate DeMeo. He basically picks a, re a relatively small kind of episode in usually American history and talks and each episode is somewhere around 15 to 20 minutes long. So it's 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 one of those podcasts that you can really kind of take in really small chunks, which is kind of nice compared to the four hour long like the the the, the Dan Carlin videos, but or podcast. But anyway. It's uh, he'll take a small thing. And so like earlier today, I was listening to an episode on a guy that did high diving in uh, the 1820s in uh, in New, in uh, New Jersey. And so he, he built a following because he would just go and he people would dare him to climb up, uh, you know, climb up onto a cliff, jump off into the water, that kind of thing. And so he became well known as this high jumper. And then, of course, one time he jumped and never resurfaced and so it's a very small story but the 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 narrator has the the, the guy that does it uh, that nate DeMeo, he has a way of just telling he's a storyteller and so he's able to kind of draw it out into a 15 minute long story about the guy which is just really interesting to listen to he has very soothing music so it's really an easy listen and it's um you know, you don't learn anything about the broader sweep of American history or anything, but it's really interesting little just nuggets of information about kind of everyday people in American history that you just don't hear about in the history books. So it's a it's 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 a good um, 
it's a good podcast. And so I'll recommend it, uh, The Memory Palace, which is available on every podcast site in the world, of course. Well, I appreciate that. It sounds like historical Zen. It it is. It I was I was listening to it while I was walking my dog earlier, and it was very. It's very soothing. It has, like I said, it's got kind of soothing music in the background. The guy has a storytelling voice where it's he he speaks kind of softly, but he's talking about kind of the drama of the moment, and so he it's 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 instilling a lot of you know he takes a very you know it's going to be a, an item that has very scant evidence attached to it. You know this is. You know, we we don't know much about the guy that did the high diving himself, but you know there were a couple of news stories on it, and so he's able to take like the news story. And he kind of embellishes a bit by talking about so he climbed the rocks, and you can imagine how it's a it's a sunny day, but it might be foggy down below. So he starts kind of kind of inserting a lot of stuff that may not have actually happened, but it helps to tell the story. And so it's you know it, it, you're never quite sure exactly how historically accurate it is, but it feels accurate. And, you know, the, and I mean, he again, he's not making some broad claim to talking about the human condition or anything like that. So it's um, so it but so it does what it needs to do. It tells you a story. It's very soothing. And, it, and you walk away. You feel, you know, it's 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 a fun it's, it's fun to listen to. I'll just put it at that. So I recommend everybody go check that out. It's a it's a pretty well-known podcast. So, you know, people that are listening to this who are into history podcasts have probably already heard about it. But, you know, I'm perfectly fine with being late to the party on that. Well, thank you. Excellent storytellers. Have, yes, exactly. Uh, have, have really established the fine art of foreshadowing when they tell mm-hmm. their stories. They they really can build to the crescendo and then really deliver in the end. Yeah, like, like this episode with the high diver. I mean, you know it's going to end in tragedy because these things always end in tragedy. He doesn't say, he doesn't give you the, he doesn't come out in fr- at the beginning of it and say, this guy's going to die. But the whole time you're listening to it, you're like, you know he's going to die. <laughs> Eventually, he's going to jump off the wrong thing and and because otherwise, why would we hear about this guy? But but yeah, it's, it's a really good story. So anyway, I'll recommend everybody go check that out. So um, thank you for joining me today, Guy. Well, thank you, Dr. Denning. Rob, this was great. I really appreciate taking the time to speak with me today. And thank you all for joining us today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, and whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear all of the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any of our other podcasts, send us an email to workinghistorians at gmail.com or reach us through our Twitter feed at WorkHistorians. For Guy Ruoff, I'm Rob Denning. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>